Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. It's a joy as always, and it's a beautiful day here in Vero Beach where I broadcast out of. And, you know, life is good. No matter how bad it is, life is good. And my guest has helped me keep a positive attitude these um, last eight months since my ear surgery that has just sidelined me in so many ways, and it's been a bad week. Um, physically, but because I've got my guest on the show, I know it's going to be an absolutely great show for you, my listeners, and for me personally as well, because he's always a ray of sunshine, and considering what he does for a living and what we're going to talk about today, it is amazing that he has managed to stay so positive, because my guest today is my friend Alexis Perido-Weeks, and he is a cybersecurity specialist. I mean, this guy lives and breathes cybersecurity. He has over 20 years of, you know, IT experience, and what he does is he helps corporations um, identify and mitigate risks to their infrastructure. And today he's going to talk about what is real that you need to know in cybersecurity, what is not real, and things you can do to protect yourself. So, Alexis, thank you so much for being on the show today and for being my friend. Oh, awesome. I'm happy to be here, Laura. I'm happy to help you to talk. Anything, anytime I get the opportunity to talk about cybersecurity and risk, it's always a challenge. Yeah, you know, it's the other day I was reading, because I get tons of cybersecurity emails from, you know, the government, from different organizations, because I feel it's important to know what's going on. And some of them are highly technical, and then some of them are like the Bezos hack on his phone. I mean, everybody can understand that Bezos got hacked, but they don't really understand how that is important for them as users to know. I mean, it's just insane the things that are happening day in and day out, and everybody's worried about Iran now, hacking our government, hacking our infrastructure. What do we really need to be thinking about? Well, you know, as individual that uses technology, one of the things we've always had to understand is how do we balance the benefits of technology with the risk associated with the new technology. And in the case of the Bozer hack, one of the things that we've seen from a WhatsApp perspective is that there is a tremendous amount of ability to manage the communication channels being secure, but there is there's still exposure that you have when you utilize those technology in the sense that you know, through cryptographic means, an individual can easily send you an image or video that has exploitable code within that application. So you may be able to get a video link, and you most people have the cat that play around on the Internet that you've seen those videos over the years. But within those videos are embedded executables that may exfiltrate data from the phone. And in the sense of Bezos, Based on published reports, one of the things we've seen is that individuals are able to exploit that and exfiltrate a large amount of data from that endpoint device based on somebody either clicking on the picture or a video in this case. And, and you would think that somebody like him would 
be protecting himself and wouldn't just click on a link even from somebody he thinks he knows. Well, that is true, but you know, from a security perspective, that's one of the things that a hacker is able to do well. Because you may receive a call or a video that comes from me, and you will say, wow, you know, this is something Alex may have sent me, and you go, and majority of the folks would click on that link, right? And so by clicking the link, where the hacker have the ability to mask their identity and give you the impression that that is actually coming from me, right? You, you've heard a lot about, like, man-in-the-middle attacks and other things where, through obfuscation, they have the ability to imitate me or, or act like me, and you would think as a trusted individual within your network, you would click on that video or you would open that image. only. To right, I got a text from myself the other day. Exactly. So a lot of those ones, you end up seeing them, and most people will just delete them. But imagine the idea of going and putting a lot of stuff on social media. Oh, I'm going on this trip, only to receive something related to that trip if you're expecting it as well. And that's kind of what kind of exposes us and put it at risk sometime because we may lower our guard when we think we know that it's coming from an authenticated um, connection, when in fact it could be uh, somebody masking uh, or somebody who wants to exploit vulnerabilities as well. Well, I know from a lot of my, my listeners and, and friends who constantly are like, Laura, what do I do? They've become almost immune to these things now. They're like, oh, well, I'm just going to click. It doesn't matter, even though they hear all these threats because they feel it is too difficult to try to figure out is this real or is it not. So I always go on the way of it's not real, and I will literally pick up a phone and call my friends by dialing the phone number, not clicking on a link to call them to say, hey, did you really send me that? But not a lot of people want to do that. So how do, you, how do people balance it? So in, when you look at a lot of the, the stuff around phishing, where somebody might try to send you an email, and the idea is to get you to take an action in that sense to be able to click on the link. Or you may receive a uh, call from Social Security, which you know Social Security is never going to call you, right? So your name is not compromised, somebody's not compromising your Social Security. You know, today we just have to take a step back and realize, are these the methods through which somebody would communicate with me? Like, I get a lot of calls every day, and most of the time when my phone rings, I pick up the phone, but I don't say anything. Because there's a lot of automated processes where they're waiting for that first hello and if you don't say anything after the first two or three seconds, most of the time the call will be um, disconnected, right? So that's one way to deal with it. From a small business perspective, what we've seen over the last few years is, uh, based on the 2019 Verizon um, data report, about 43% of the targeting around hacking and ransomware has been in small businesses, right? Because right. most of the times they don't invest as much time to kind of, be mindful of securing their business. You know, their concern is making sure they can run their business and security may be not as prevalent for, you know, for a small business because they may think I don't have enough information. Why would somebody in Iran or any other place may want to attack me, right? But that's right. where some of the challenges are in the sense that because we, we don't think of ourselves as being a target, which is why the hackers are more targeting us. Right? because we're not doing 
the basic things, right? You know, what are the security hygiene that we would do? Like, think about it. If you're walking out of your house, you'll first make sure your door is locked, right? Right. You'll validate that sometime before you go to bed. You'll make sure my doors are locked, everything to the garage is locked. But when we go to the business, it becomes a different thing. They're thinking, oh, well, the alarm is on. I don't have to worry about anything. But these are the things that as small businesses, they have to go back on, not just small business, but business in general. You need to have protocols in place that would do like secondary validation, right? So if somebody call and say, hi, this is Laura Stewart. You know, uh, we need to have this money transfer because of this transaction that we're working on. We're like, wow, they probably have enough information because they've been in your system long enough where they're checking how emails are flowing. They've um, infiltrated your messaging system so they know and have the way how you communicate, who do you send information to. And if that person don't have steps in place to validate or authenticate that request, like you spoke about before, being able to just pick up the phone, right? You right. have those controls in place that kind of protects it. I know a friend of mine who's in the IT business, um, he had a friend of his, it was not a client of theirs, who they had gotten hacked through one of those Yahoo hacks several years ago. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a Yahoo email anymore, but you know how Yahoo bought like SBC Global and all these mm-hmm. other ones and they all got merged in. And they sent an email to a client, an invoice to a client, and the client sends back, well, we'd like to do a, um, a wire transfer. Mm-hmm. And the guy sends his wire transfer information in an email. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't actually make it. It gets stopped by hackers who were watching all this and looking mm-hmm. for strings of characters in the emails. And next thing you know, he gets a phone call from the client saying, thank God for this, though, because the client goes, did you change banks to somewhere offshore? Because mm-hmm. he recognized that there was something strange in the string he got. And he goes, no, what are you talking about? And they were able to stop it. Before but, it was executed. And that happens. Yeah. You know, we've had clients that we've dealt with before where there have been someone new who joined the organization. Like I had a client a couple of years, um, sometime last year who brought up the same request. There was an incident where we had a new payroll person that came in place. So the, the secretary who works with the owner understand those protocols. So they receive a general email for the same wire transfer example that you spoke about. And the person being new, not being acclimated with all of the processes within the organization, executed that request. So there was a call now where he, that individual reached out to the owner and they said, hey, I just wanted to let you know I didn't get a chance to submit that request for you because I was busy doing other stuff. And the owner's like, what, what request? Right? So in that sense, because he was late getting um, tied up with other events, he didn't go to and submit the request. But that goes back to your um, comment before. Most of the time we have to take those manual or basic stuff where you actually validate that request itself or have processes in place where maybe one person can approve um, invoices at a 10,000 level, but if it's like 40 or 50,000, they need a secondary person. And even sometimes with the phone, uh, they have the ability to mask the phone and the voice as well, right, where they can come in and if you're using 
the ability for somebody to call you when you look on the phone, it looks like it's coming from me, but somebody's exploiting that information as well. Right, like when I got the call from myself. Exactly, exactly. And we get the iOS one every day because they've been calling me forever. Somehow my account is compromised in Texas, and they're really trying to help me. Yes, and the Microsoft hack that just happened, everybody's waiting for more Microsoft phone calls to start going out. And saying that their Microsoft support. Same one as well, right? They continue to see that because there's an expectation where we get heightened when these exposures happen. And one of the concerns that businesses have to take is have that understanding of who have access to your data. You know, everyone is trying to move to the cloud right now, and it is so easy to deploy most of these technology. But what is happening because of that? Um, advancement in technology and how easy it is to spin up these stuff, people are not thinking of the basic security or fundamental security um, controls that you would have in place where you would typically validate something before it occurs. So you get a lot of these databases that get loaded up to Azure or AWS only to find out that they're exposed to a cloud and you know Google is going to get everything. So once it's accessible via that approach, then you get indexed. And then there's a lot of security researchers who spend a lot of time searching for those vulnerabilities, most of the time to tell businesses so that they can fix the issues, but it's happening way too often now. So what, what can the average small business owner, what are some things that they need to be doing on a regular basis? We talked about some protocols you had suggested, you know, around invoices and making sure that the emails are really coming from the people. And, and we all know that one of the biggest phishing, and by the way, everybody, phishing with a PH, meaning it's somebody sending random things out, waiting to see who will click, and that will infect you. So we've seen like these phishing scams where it says you've received an invoice, and you click on the invoice, and it automatically fills your, your entire computer, your business network with ransomware. So what are some things that everybody must be doing? So one of the things that, um, that I've seen in some of the organizations that I manage is just to have processes in place in terms of understand, A, where, where all your sensitive data is located, right? Is it in files? Is it on this server? Is it in the cloud? Is it in Dropbox? Just understanding first where all that information is. Once you've identified where your critical information is, then you can put processes in place of how you want to protect that information. Phishing, for example, is one of the fastest growing trends as a form of ransomware where the idea is to get you to click and enter credentials into an external system from which they can use, a, use later to infiltrate your environment. So from phishing or small business perspective, there is like an Office 365 compliance modules and other things that you can add to your account. So, like, they have anywhere from, like, 4 to $5 per mailbox, right? So that way you don't have to manage it on your own. And then you can put secondary controls into those requests. The idea is to be able to prevent those infrastructure or true infrastructure changes before you get to the end user. Because one of the challenges that I see in the business is majority of the time, a user is going to click the link. Right? And as an organization, I need to make sure that there's controls in place before you have to click on that link specifically. 
So I make sure that those things are in place from a business perspective. So and trying thing, to stop that email from even getting in, and if it gets in, when it's clicked, stop it from replicating. Exactly. Or okay. there, there may Great. be some organization who have controls in place that says links within emails are disabled, right? So you can present, prevent the person from clicking on the link, and if they do click on the link, one of the things that you want to do as a small business is have, like, security awareness training, Right, where you can have an organization who would come in and do like a tabletop exercise to work with your team and say, when an email comes in, what are the things that we look for to verify? That email that talks about Tom Cook is going to give you money, uh, Zuckerman is going to give you a million dollars if you forward this stuff, those are not valid emails. But you should be able to do that basic things like mousing over the send emails to see if it's actually the right domain. Right? When you click on the link, see if it really goes to your bank. And look at it from a, a user behavior analysis by trying to understand, are these the means through which those organizations communicate with me? Right? And if, right. It, if, it, if it sounds fishy, um, small things like English is not proper, if that's not your primary language, things that are misspelled, you can see that as well. But then have a plan. And most organizations that goes through an incident or phishing or ransomware, if you don't have processes in place to recover, you might as well close business, especially if you have you know, PII or highly confidential information, because you need to have a process in place where not just having a policy. You know, having a policy may be good when you're in a regulated, regulated industry where they'll come and validate, did you have controls in place prior to an incident, right? That's what that's going to be able to help you. But if you have policies and controls and you're not even executing them, that's even worse, right? Right. And you, you're going to have to deal with a lot of those challenges. So have a recovery plan that is tested at least once or twice a year and then have the processes in place from an organizational perspective to understand how the business works, have awareness training for your individuals. And one of the second biggest challenges that I see today is you know, small businesses or individuals who travel. You know, you've gone to the airport and everybody's plugging in, right? Oh, you know, God, I never get, do that, but right? let's they explain to, to everybody that why that's a bad thing to do. <laughs> well, it is a bad thing because, you know, as a privacy and a security professional, my control is always to not plug in into anything that I don't control, right? So when I travel, I have my own Wi-Fi, so I don't have to connect to the airport Wi-Fi. Or you okay, go to the explain, hotel. explain to my listeners who might not know what Wi-Fi is, what that is. Yeah, so Wi-Fi, like, the technology has gone to the point where you can get like an external device that you can connect to. It's like a Wi-Fi that you would have in the business or in the home. You can either plug into the device or you can connect to it wirelessly. And it allows you to get online so you can read your email, check the banks. Just like when you go to the airport. Like if you're flying out of Palm Beach International, for example, you may have free Wi-Fi. Or you're flying out of Fort Lauderdale or Miami or Orlando, they may offer you that free Wi-Fi. Most of the time, individuals will try to connect. Right, right or Starbucks or, or any or, local or place like that. Exactly. But even if you're going to connect, if you don't have a Wi-Fi, you're going to travel and you do need to connect to those open networks as they are called, one of the things that you can do is have a VPN installed, right? So you have the ability to install a VPN on your device, and especially if you're traveling, 
you know, that is the case internationally as well. Okay, you and a VPN sure that, for everybody who does not know. We're getting into some geek speak that Lucas and I that. totally understand because we're geeks and so we've been living this a long time. That allows you to mask your connection, right? So we, you have the ability to say, I'm in Florida, but if I connect, I can show my connection that I'm in California. Okay. Do you have a recommendation for a good VPN that people should consider? Well, uh, I know Lifelock and Symantec have a, a decent one that they actually travel um, have. Um, they run Secure VPN is one that I use. Um, always make sure you get something that you have to pay for because if it's free, more than likely they're collecting the logs and it's being resold, right? Because there was an incident, I think, recently by Avas who it was determined to security research that the information that they were collecting from that antivirus was being resold to third parties, right? So, as I always say, whenever it's a free service, more than likely you're the product. And yeah, you're paying for it, even if you don't realize you're paying for it. Exactly. So, and those are the things you just have to make, you know, like it goes back to, to the basic understanding, you know. How would you secure your home the same way you secure your business? And just being mindful. Okay. Now we've seen instances even where malware is now being put in some of these cables that you're using to charge your iPhones. So you have to be very uh, conscious of that. Okay, I, I want to go into the cable thing, but yeah. I want to ask a question about the MiFi. Yeah. Uh, so if somebody has their own personal hotspot, which is basically another word for it, is there a way to secure it so that only they can connect to it? Because a lot of so, people get these things and they use them out of the box and they don't lock them down. So, so the first thing you would do, just like you would do if you're in your business, you would go and change all the default um, security ID and the password that comes with it. Because by default, if you go and search online for a router that AT&T or Comcast is switching, they would have the default information of maybe admin and admin, Right. So if you're running that in your business, that can easily be exploited once somebody can get to those networks. So by changing it to something that you know, don't use your kid's name, your high school you went to, or something that may be unique that if somebody go and search for Laura, for example, you wouldn't have a password that says all about the questions, right? Because that right. may be something that an individual can associate with you. So there is multiple variation in terms of adding uppercase, special characters, or something using like a specific phrase that's unique to you, right? Like my grandfather was a World War II vet and then give a date or a year, something to that, or something that's unique to them. And so the, the number of characters and the length of the password makes it a little bit more difficult from an individual basis to try to break into that. Now, if a nation state or somebody with a lot of uh, power, utility, have the ability to crack that, um, easily, right? Because they have enough spindles to time of spin-up operation or processes to try to get to that. But at right, a basic but level, compli complication, I'll make it a little complicated and it helps that as well. And if, they're, if you're using it in a public area, they're probably going to skip you and go to the low-hanging fruit that they can easily hack into. Exactly, you know. You want to make it a little tougher for them. as well, right? Even though you're in a public place and you're using um, wireless networks that you don't own, there's like um, privacy shield that you can have on your laptop that kind of limits the visibility of 
you know, what individual can see if they're not right in front of the monitor. Basically, be aware of everything around you. Mm -hmm. Pr protect right. your data. Understand where it is. Mm -hmm. And don't connect to public Wi-Fi unless you absolutely have no other choice. Exactly. And if you okay. do have to connect, make sure you have a VPN. All right. So when we come back, we're going to talk about more cybersecurity things that you need to do, including why plugging into that charging port at the airport may not be the best thing or borrowing somebody else's charging cable. We'll be right back with more from the amazing Alexis Perdue Weeks. We'll be right back with all about the questions. Welcome back, everyone. If you missed the first half, then you need to listen to the podcast because I'm here with Alexis Peridot Weeks. We've been talking all things cybersecurity, what you need to know to protect your business and yourself. And we're, we're going really deep in here. Some of it may have been a bit geeky for those of you who are, are non-geeks um, in the first half, but don't worry um, Alexis and I are here to help you, and he's going to share how you can reach out to him if you have questions and stuff. Uh, you can listen to the podcast wherever podcasts you like. On podcast, uh, I'm now on Pocket Casts. We're also on iTunes, um, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Google Play, Google Podcasts, pretty much any pod podcast platform you can get. It's all about the questions on. I would love it if you would subscribe to the show, rate and review it, because that really helps. And please share the episodes with your friends if you find they like them and invite them also to subscribe and rate and review. Um, you know, I, I love this show. I love all of you, my listeners, and I'd love to be able to help more people by introducing them to the guests that I have on my show and the amazing questions that they pose to you to help you have a better business and a better life. So, Alexis, before the, the national news so rudely intruded on the show, <laughs> um, we were talking about when you're in public places and how you can protect yourself by using personal hotspots and MiFi. But there is also another threat that you started to allude to that is actually really frightening. The idea that those power charging stations at airports or that the cable that you're charging your phone with while you're on the road can actually be filled with spyware and can put things on your devices to damage you. Talk to us about that and so what that is and how you can prevent that. Definitely. And it, it goes back to Security 101. Most of the time when you're traveling the airport, you see a lot of people connected. You know, the, the risk is higher, especially for those connections where you're connecting via the USB charger, where you're plugging the USB into a socket, right? What we don't understand is understanding the connection behind that socket because a lot of organizations who may try to exploit either vulnerabilities within those charging stations can actually drop malware in those systems. So once you plug in, the connection and then the malware is loaded onto your system and they create like a backdoor from which they can later connect into your um, laptop device, especially if it's a corporate device. So the recommendation is to always have a power adapter where you can plug it into one of those 
as opposed to using the USB connection where you're just plugging in the USB into one of those charging stations. And recently we've seen some researchers who have been able to um, infiltrate endpoints by dropping malware in a traditional um, USB charging um, cable where they give you that cable where they may leave it in, in an organization. You know, we've, some of the folks we've talked about, like Kevin Mesnick and some of the famous hackers, they've talked about the ability to exfiltrate those things where you may be walking through your, your, your office and in the parking lot there's a USB outside. And if you're in finance, you may say financial records or something like that for you to be able to plug it in. Right, and once you drop those in, just like the cable, you can now introduce malware into your laptop. And then, if you have administrative privilege on your network, now you're now exposing the organization because you've plugged in a device that you can't control as well. So, don't use somebody else's phone cable unless you know them and know where they got the cable. Yep. And don't use the cable. Don't connect to in, to networks. Anything to charge and you don't control unless you're going to use a power cable. So you have to control, I own the cable, I know this is my USB, you don't borrow it from another one to try to charge your phone because you don't know whether it's a, um, a valid cable or something may have been um, dropped on that in device. So you're at a hotel and you realize you don't have your cable, don't go to the front desk and ask if they have one. I would try not to do that. Okay. Is it safe to just buy generic cables from your local store or no? Well, those would be safe. Most of the times, you know, we can't get too paranoid that we would not charge our device because we'll run out of juice. Um, what I have seen in previously, like on, especially on the Apple devices, there have been a lot of uh, controls put in place to prevent certain type of cables from being able to charge the phones. So when you plug it in, either it's not enough power or it just doesn't work at all. Um, but most of those ones that you find in the gas station and other places may be able to be for quick charge, and you wouldn't expect malware to be added there, but you'll be surprised. It may cost you a little bit more, but the information that you would protect would be worth so much more. Right? Now, I may be paranoid, but I worry about China, right, that they're making all this tech, and we've seen in the news, and I'm going to slaughter how to say this, who, why, mm -hmm. That, mm -hmm. that tech company that, you know, is rolling out all this 5G and has all yeah. this uh, cell tech and everything. Mm -hmm. But you can't find a cable or a charger or a phone that's made anywhere but China. Is it something we really need to worry about? Well, even not only just our cables and our tech, right? I mean, we've seen instances where malware was implanted at the chip level, Right. So right. you go and you buy a Dell or HP device, and the chip that is inside running it, it's actually infected with malware, right? So folks are able to exfiltrate um, information from those devices. The idea is to be able to have those in American companies that's operating in, in that part of the world being able to have a, a better control around the production process, right? Because if you have third parties and other individuals who provide in specific parts within your operations, you've got to be able to think of it from a total quality management, you know, the old uh, process management where you know and control every component and parts and process as it goes through that line. Because now the malware is not just happening when they're breaking into your system. They can add that into components that you have no control over. 
and then you get onto that you know, hard drive level or at the chip level or the motherboard or something that's built in that you as a traditional user don't have access to that information. But the folks who can compromise that individual who's more than likely is in a low-paying role, you know, it, it is going to become a challenge because they would easily go for that money as opposed to the impact that it's going to have on the client, you know, when that device is actually shipped. But there's not a lot that the average person can do to even know that their system is impacted that way, or is there, Alexis? Well, there is things that you can do in terms of, like, looking for anomalies. You know, you constantly have a malware bytes running, um, a virus scan. Um, no, they have a lot of UBA, right, user-based analysis tools, where, like, Silence and some of these other new applications, they're looking, in, they're looking at anomalies in terms of, what are the behaviors that you see in your day-to-day -day operations and how can we actually fix it? So they look for differences in trend, right? Like a hacker who's going to break into your system, the first thing they're going to look at is doing a reconnaissance. It's just like the military, right? You're going to go scope out the area, try to find wherever weaknesses that we can later go in, but you want to be in a situation to have that understanding of what is all there. And then once they identify that, then they start exfiltrating all this data from your endpoint, right? So different things that you look for. Like my uncle, for example, he has one system that he does his banking. Or I have a friend of mine who have an iPad or a specific computer. He only does banking on that device. Once he's done, he shut it down. So he kind of isolate what you wanted to do. Now you're saying if you go to like a a coffee shop or other things. While you're there, maybe you may check your mail, but you may not check bank, right? So in case if that network is exploited and there was a drop something on your endpoint where they would do like a keylogger. So a keylogger is a tool where they can drop on your computer and they can capture everything. So while you may take additional steps to protect your infrastructure, if a hacker or somebody who really needs to get to your information decided, I'm going to drop a a key logger on your device, you know, you're logging into all these websites and they're capturing your login ID and password. So when, okay. when the system actually thinks that, oh, this Laura is logging in, it's in fact somebody who's logging in a Laura, and to get around those things, you can have like secondary authentication where you'll need to put like a PIN or something when you log into your bank or other um, important does a, a last pass or a one pass some of these password yes. um, storage pass and, and generation help? Because don't a, they send passwords exactly. encrypted? Yep, they send password encrypted or what they've done, they allow you to put the password in and then they may ask you to put an additional authentication, maybe through a PIN or they may do a call to um, a specific phone of yours. Like I know Gmail has that now where when you log on to your Gmail, they have a 2FA or two-factor authentication added to your account. So someone, where if they try to log into your account, it's going to prompt for a PIN that should send you like an, an IM to your phone with a six-digit code. And once you have that six-digit code, then once you put that in, it actually lets you in. Right? Organizations like Facebook and other ones, they use the same user behavior analytics to determine, okay, Laura continuously logs in from Vero Beach. All of a sudden, she's in Germany. Is it really Laura or is it somebody who's imitating Laura, right? 
So they may say, okay, now you need to log on and identify six of your friends from a list of ten. So there's additional controls that organizations like that put in place, but as business owners, we have to be mindful of that as well. <laughs> yeah, yet Facebook allows so many fake accounts. <laughs> well, they so can validate that as well, right? So it's like yeah. trying to get understanding what is fake and what is not fake. And now with AI, like I was just reading an article this week, they were talking about um, a lot of this AI and robotic stuff where they're impersonating folks, right, where they can actually have the full communication with you. And small little differences you start looking at in terms of the images. You know, is the earring right? Does it look right? Right? You're getting onto that finite process of understanding how you protect your data because you can easily be um, replicated. You know, whether it's your biometrics, somebody capture your picture, and now they're presenting your picture in front of a scanner if it needs to do your, your irises and other things like that. So the technology has it changed. The risk and challenges increase, and we just have to have – it's all about awareness, right? Okay, and let's, let's talk about social media before we run out of time here today. Sure. Because, I mean, I just recently got four friend requests, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm looking at it and says, oh, you know, there's like four mutual friends, 20 mutual mm-hmm. friends, right? I always go and I look at those friends, yes. and if they're only women friends, mm-hmm. then I typically say, okay, I need to look into this one further. And Mm -hmm. three of those four had Mm -hmm. the same pictures on their profile of the same person. And That's that's true, and we've seen a lot of that where users are going out or processes going out where they're just capturing um, stock pictures, right, and creating these profiles. And the same security um, awareness we need to be mindful of because I get a lot of those same requests every day through LinkedIn and other social media. You know, Facebook I don't use as much, but LinkedIn from a networking within the community, I do a lot of um, connection requests, and it's a way of giving back. But one of the cautionary stuff that I do is if you receive a LinkedIn request, first thing I do is check the profile, and you go through those validation like you talked about before. But just even on social media, you know, the security concern is being mindful of what you post. Right on social media and understand the purpose of each one of those networks. What we've seen in the past is individuals will be traveling and they will go post their whole itinerary. I'm going to be in Paris next week, and now they leave their house open. Right. Right. So, so those are the thing kind of extra steps you need to be mindful of what you're putting out there, or being able to control the amount of information that is in social media, because when a hacker is going to come after you, most of the time they'll search you in Google and get all this information about you before an attack is done, unless it's a random attack where they're going to break into a bank that has millions of people. Okay. And as a cybersecurity professional, what are your feelings? And I know you're not a big fan of Facebook, but this is on LinkedIn and stuff too, not as prevalent. But, Mm. you know, they have all these surveys out there. They've got all these wonderful articles with dogs and cats. And I heard that a lot of those now... Even those articles are AI out of Russia and stuff trying to begin to lure you in to start giving you false information so that they can get information from you. Is that your understanding? The whole whole social media and attack, one of the things that we've seen, like last summer as part of my 
um, research organization, American Institute of Cybersecurity Leadership, we went to NATO. So as part of our, our trip to Europe, there was a research that came out just before a trip that talked about um, some of the effect of social media where, you know, obviously a beautiful woman is going to come and friend you, and then you start having this conversation, and sooner or later you start sharing information of where you're at, right? And now that impacts the mission, right? Because there's certain things you don't want to make sure that those individuals are not sharing. And if you get to that comfort level, that's the whole issue around espionage and being able to get you to reveal information that may be critical to you as a, uh, a personnel, a military personnel, you know, serving your country. So you've seen a lot of that as well. So you always have to be mindful of even someone who you think that is, it's someone who you know. Just think of it, if, some, if I receive a request from Laura for a link and other things like that that I'm not expecting, like you said before, you pick up the phone and call Laura because Laura could have been hacked or could have been exposed, and now they do like a dictionary attack where they start sending all these links that you just click on, or they're just trying different things from your password because your account has been compromised as well. So you always have to be mindful of that. The same concern you would do offline, you have to be more mindful online as well. By the way, I sent you a friend request on Facebook because I realized we were not connected there because I know you're hardly ever there. So you will exactly. see a friend request from me. <laughs> Perfect. Because, you know, Facebook, like when, when it started, there was a big push in terms of connecting people from the past. You know, one of the things that we've seen, especially around the Cambridge Analytics, is the whole idea of how information is actually shared and collected. And, you know, that goes into a lot of the new push around data privacy and the whole collection and, and usage of customer data. Because one of the things we need to understand in this day and age is the importance of data, right? There is a whole, you know, you think of it, the gold rush before. There's a rush around data. When you look at the type of institutions that are being compromised, right? They're going to go for your medical records. They're going to go after your credit records, right? And then, like, the, the GSA uh, military um, uh, clearance system that was attacked a couple of years ago. So now they have a full picture of law. And, you know, in, in the past, I have worked in a lot of healthcare organizations where imagine if someone compromised or come in as law or steward to get free services, right? Now your medical record is being updated for an illness that you may not have, right? And that changes your, your medical records now. That's like a whole different conversation um, around the whole risk of your medical records and the importance of, of knowing what is there and limiting who have access to that information. Well, that actually happened to somebody I know. Their medical identity was stolen and people were having surgery. Of course, of course. In, in, uh, in Miami before, when I ran security at a, a previous institution there, I ran into the same thing because we had somebody who tried to come in and we had to do an investigation from my group, my, my, my team that I was leading at the time, because we had it done closed circuit. The person come in, they say, here is the ID, and they bring that information. And, you know, once you validate that this person have insurance, now you accept them in, you start pulling up stuff, differences in blood type, you know, now they can be getting medication that they have logic reactions. So it's, it's a constant challenge to stay abreast of them. Well, that's how she found out that her medical identity had been hacked. She went mm -hmm. to the ER and she needed blood, and they said, your blood type is so-and-so, and she goes, no, it's not. Yep. yep. 
and and then it was just a nightmare to prove that she's really her. Yes. So most of the time, when when you you have instances where your information is hacked or your account is compromised, your IRS, for example, you know they would send your code every year to validate when you're ready to do your tax filings as well. Right? That is in fact you. You know, one of the institutions where I worked at before, there was the public information where individuals were just copying pictures of face sheets and other things like that. So even within those institutions that manage access to that information, we have to be mindful of how that is managed, who have access to it, and have the process of being able to monitor people. You know, from a security professional, one of the things that I'm always prevalent of is the fact that, you know, the person who is an insider have the most access to your information. While, while you trust that person to be able to do their jobs, you need to have control that would see anomalies, right? If all of a sudden Laura's account is logging in from Germany when she's in Vero, that, that's an anomaly, right? So you need to have an event monitoring system that would track those kind of things like a login, where you're logging from, what time of the day you're logging in, and what kind of access that you have on a regular basis. And for those individuals with highest access, there is additional controls you want to validate to make sure that, you know, we're doing an audit of those access. Laura still need that access, right? And that happens in businesses today, you know, large and big. But for small businesses, it's even more important because the wrong person authorizes huge transaction and you could be wiped out financially easily. It's like when you buy a new house, the first thing you do is you change the locks on the door when somebody every so often needs to go back through your systems and remove usernames and passwords of people that are no longer there. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. We've had institutions that we've worked before where accounts haven't been changed in four years. Right? So people who have left us still have access to that information to the system. You know, I had a buddy of mine who worked for an institution up in Georgia before and Somebody had left the organization four or five months, and they were still getting email on their phone because their account hasn't been, been disabled, right? So the wow. whole just as important as it is to onboard someone, it is important to have processes in place that would allow you to offboard someone or manage that transaction. And that's one of the things that we do through the American Institutes of Cybersecurity Leadership is that our goal is to work with organizations, North America, Canada, and Latin America, to increase our security posture. Um, majority of the folks through the programs are research. So we're looking at it not only from a practical perspective, but from a research on what the market is doing, where the market is heading from a cybersecurity risk, and trying to understand why someone would click that link. Got it. So, Alexis, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to share how people can reach out to you if they have questions, they need support from you, or other resources that you have. So why don't you share that? So one of the organizations that we are affiliated with is the American Institute of Cybersecurity Leadership. So you can reach out to us as corporate at americascyber, A-M-E-R-I-C-A-S, cyber.org. Uh, phone number 561-318-1952 um, is where you can reach me or you can reach me through Laura. Because we do a lot of stuff with nonprofit organizations as well. Because we've seen an uptick in cities being attacked through ransomware and nonprofit organizations who may not have those resources available 
there may be an opportunity for us to at least come in, work with them, have a conversation, do some tabletop exercises, and just help them increase their security posture. So that email again is corporate at americascyber.org. So it's America with an S, C Y B E R dot org. And the phone number again, Alexis? It's 561 318 Okay. And if somebody didn't catch that, you can always reach out to me or go to the podcast and you can pause it. <laughs> <laughs> and write the number down because if you're in the car, I don't want you writing down any of these emails or phone numbers or anything like that. You can always catch it wherever podcasts are or wherever you like to listen to them. So, Alexis, I mean, you shared so much incredible information with us, and I know for some of my listeners they're feeling on overload. In 30 seconds or less, what one question should they ask themselves today to better protect themselves? One question you need to ask yourself today is what is the value of your data? Right? What is your data worth? How much information you want to put out there and what process or steps you want to take to protect that information? Because yeah. a lot of information is being hoarded today, right? Every site you go to, there's information being saved on you, um, stored everywhere you go. Whether you go on Facebook, Amazon, Google, you try to buy something, um, an organization may drop a cookie on your PC, and a cookie is a little um, strip of information that tracks where you go, what you buy. Yeah, and I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <yep>, <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Grateful as Anytime. always, my friend. You got a great time. Thanks for having me, Brian. Have a good day. Everybody, remember that the right questions can change your life. So, what are you asking today, especially around cybersecurity? You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 